And our preaching text this morning is Colossians chapter 3. I'll be reading through uh, verses 1 through 17. 1 through 17, page 1176. A little bit of introduction before we begin. This is the letter to the Christian church in Colossae. And it was written by the Apostle Paul. This town, Colossae, is in modern-day Turkey. It's part of Asia Minor. And this is a letter of encouragement and of warning, because this is an interesting town, and it has an interesting set of circumstances that go with it. There was an un... Well, we, we don't know the name of it, but there was a religious movement in this town that was pretty active. And it was a problem for the Christian church there. And the reason is the reason we'll get into in just a minute. But and and so the reason we don't know the name of it is because it, it, its name is not given anywhere in our records. Uh, and we don't know much about what it believes except for what the Apostle Paul writes in this book as a warning against it. Very interesting. So there was this religious movement in this town, and all we know about what they do is all the things that Paul tells people in the Christian church of that town not to imitate. Okay? Interesting. Um, but if you wanted a name for it, it could be something called syncretism. Syncretism is when you kind of merge religions with each other. Uh, when you have an existing religion and new influences come from a new religion and people kind of pick and choose which parts of it they like. It's sort of like a spiritual buffet, although if you're Swedish you would call it a smörgåsbord. A smorgasbord, that's a Swedish word. Did you know that? Smorgasbord is a Swedish word. It, it basically means a table full of bread that has butter uh, sort of slathered on top of each piece. That's actually what it means. Like, literally, that's the smorgasbord. So that's really not that. There's not a lot to choose from at a smorgasbord, just bread and butter. But at a buffet, man, you got everything. So, like, if you go to... to um, Sweet tomatoes, which we love as our family, you can have just about anything there, you know? There's all sorts of things. So some people take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this. What, what are some of the things that people were choosing? There was in this town what we think was worship of angels. The archangel Michael, in particular, was an object of worship or veneration in this town. And so that would tip you off already that there were some Jewish people living in this town. And we know from history that the Jews had spread far and wide prior to the writings of Paul, and they had lived in all corners of the Roman Empire. And as they got further away from Jerusalem, they probably sort of spun off in their own directions and had their own proclivities and their own beliefs that weren't really classic Orthodox Judaism. And so a, a group of Jewish people started worshiping angel, the, Mar, the angel, uh, archangel Michael, but then they had pagan neighbors that had pagan religions, and they kind of said, well, this sounds good. And so they started worshiping the moon, maybe, or they were observing the moon in its movements and having festivals based on, on, on solar and lunar events. And so, and it sounds like that it wasn't just Jewish people, but this whole town was just kind of developing its own religion. Um, also, one aspect of it was something called asceticism which is a removal of the self from the world. And so you, uh, many religions have this where you kind of separate yourself from the world and you separate yourself from the appetites of the world. And so you eat a very minimal amount and you might go a day without drinking water or two days, which is very dangerous. And you, you, you abstain from other things that are pleasurable or sensory, which 
are actually good things. And so this, this removal from the world in an attempt to get to a more higher plane. And Christians can, can practice this. It's called fasting. We can do this. As long as it points us towards God, drives us more towards dependence in God, it's a great spiritual discipline. But in and of itself, it's not a whole spiritual system. It has to be directed towards God. Otherwise, it's just done for its own purposes. And so it sounds like this town was saying, don't touch these things, don't eat these things, don't, don't uh, taste these things. And the Christian church was having that, was, was sort of a, a challenge for them. Another aspect of these religions that you have in these, these, at this time, syncretistic, what we call syncretistic religions, was that they were also shrouded in a bit of mystery, which is fun. You know, like the longer you're in the religion, the more little nuggets of knowledge that they'll give you. And you grow, and then you can kind of lord that over the people who haven't been in it as long as you. And did you know that we have many modern religions that are the same way? So just to name a few, one of them is Mormonism. The further in you go, the more of the secrets are revealed. There's parts of the temple you can't get into unless you kind of have passed a few things. The other is Scientology. The more money you give them to go to their crazy classes, the more they reveal to you about the foundation of their belief until you, after you've given them about $150,000, and I'm not making any of this up. You would think I am, but I am not making this up. After you've given the Scientologist $150,000 and gone to about 10 years of classes and basically given up 10 years of your life, your productive life, relationships, and experiences that you'll never get back, that's when they tell you that 80 million years ago, aliens gathered all sorts of spiritual forces and put them inside a volcano and blew it up with nuclear bombs. I am not making any of that up. That's what they teach you. So I just saved you $150,000 in 10 years of your life, but they don't teach you that at the first thing, and they're, they're very chagrined that that's out there now because that, that was the big reveal. And of course, most, you know, there's one famous Hollywood director uh, Mike Figgis, he actually went through that whole process, and when he got to that big moment, he was like, that's ridiculous. And he, he, he had the sense to walk out the door. But other people were like, I'm in a bind. I've spent all this money, and this is, this is the religion? So then they have a choice. I either have to double down on this craziness so that I avoid the cognitive dissonance, or I have to walk out the door. But you know what? If your whole life is this thing, it's very hard to walk out the door. It was a brave thing to do. So I'm not preaching about Scientology today, but all I'm saying is there were religions and there still are religions where mystery and secrets are part of what are going on. And, and that may have been the case about this syncretistic religion that Paul is addressing in his letter to the Colossians. So the Christians in that town found themselves in a difficult spot. They were sort of at odds with their town maybe were being threatened by the dominant religion of the town. They might have been tempted to adopt some of the rituals just to get along because, you know, everybody else was doing it. All the popular kids were doing this thing, and so they were sort of tempted to do it. And so this letter is an encouragement by Paul to this little church to say, yes, I know there's a strange religion in your town. It could be tempting or threatening to you. Set that aside and focus solely on Jesus Christ and his identity and who he made you to be. And when you do that, all these other things are going to be falling into their proper shape and proper proportion. And so that's a, it's a really beautiful letter because 
not only is he encouraging them that they should do this, but he's also sort of praising them that on many levels they have been doing this. So this is a healthy church, yet still getting some encouragement and some warning from from the Apostle Paul. So the section we're looking at today in chapter 3, which I'm about to read, is just another reminder of what our connection with Jesus looks like and what it means for the future and how we are then to live our lives now. And so Paul is centering us again on who Jesus is, what he's done for us, how that changes us in our lives. Let's go to our reading, Colossians 3. Paul writes this, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, And as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word, and we ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. I got a little carried away with the Scientologist there, so it's okay. It's all right. Um, But I'm going to talk about this just a little bit, about this idea of buffet religion, sort of a little bit of this, a little bit of that, whatever works for me. You see this even now. I've had many conversations with people who say essentially that, you know, I like, you know, I like to nibble. I like to kind of nosh on these various different things. And, And they would say, well, it works for me. And on one level, I would say, that's great. You know, if it works for you, On some level, that's great. I'm glad you're happy. I'm glad you found what you're looking for. But on another level, I would kind of have to say, what if there's a logical inconsistency between this buffet table 
and, and this buffet table? Like, what if they actually are set up using completely different systems of thought? How could you actually mix them? Can I put anchovies on my breakfast cereal? You know, I, I can't. Maybe you can't. I can't do that. It's not going to taste good. Those are to two totally different gastronomic systems going on right there. And it's, it's I, maybe I could train myself to do that, but that buffet thing is not going to work for me because at the core, all these different religions have very different worldviews, very different understandings of human nature, very different understandings of who God is. And you'll hear this often. They'll say, don't you all kind of believe the same thing in general, you know, isn't it all pretty much? No. I mean, I'll just have to be very clear. No. We believe very different things. That doesn't mean that we, we uh, disrespect people who believe different things, except for the Scientologists. I can't get over that. But, you, you know, they're going to sue me now. That's what they do. Um, but, you know, we believe that God created this universe and everything in it, that sin entered this world and is a part of who we are, and that it's redeemed by the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and that we have new life both now and forever as a result of that. That's a very different system than any other system in this world. I'm, not, I'm just saying it's different. You cannot combine that with some other system, and it, and it still makes sense. It's, it's just its own thing. So, and and our, our faith is kind of, in a way, a bit exclusive. And usually that's a bad word, but I want us to think about this exclusivity in a good way. Um, the Old Testament, the New Testament, God says he's a jealous God. He says it kind of has to be this way. The New Testament, Jesus is the same way. He says, you know, this is kind of the only truth that we know of, all right? And so on one level, that's what baptism is for the Christian faith, it's like saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose this path. I'm going to identify myself as a follower of Jesus. I'm going to stop following other things. So we have to decide. And that's what that word decide means. It means actually to cut off other options. To decide is to choose a path, but it also means to sort of unchoose other paths. It means to exclude other paths. And, um, you know, you can think about this too much. I, I, a friend of mine, he went to a wedding once, and he kind of heard this. Actually, this was his friend. They, they told the story of, like, the worst proposal ever, like somebody proposed to his girlfriend. And, to, and he said, I, I would love you to marry me and, and stuff like that. And great. So she said yes. And then he, he, he should have stopped talking, which is always a good idea. It's like, just stop talking when it's going well. And he said, you know, I, I chose you, I decided to be with you, which means I've cut off all the other choices that I could have with other partners in life. Okay, so far, so good. But then he said, and I'm mourning a little bit that I'm mourning, like I'm, I'm regretting a little bit that I'm saying no to all these other... He was being a little too theoretical, a little too philosophical in the midst of a proposal. And, you know, like the worst proposal ever. So she, she got it. And she said yes, but she's like, that was a very bad proposal. Don't, don't do that. You know? Don't tell me you regret getting engaged to me. That's not what I want to hear right now. Tell me you're the happiest person in the world right now. Even if it's a lie, I just need to hear that part. You know. So, But he was right. In choosing her, he was forsaking all others, as it says in the marriage vows, right? 
And so when you become a Christian, you, in essence, forsake all other paths, all other buffet tables, all other anchovies, okay? And, and you, you set them aside, and you belong to Christ, and you decide to follow him as he's revealed in the scriptures. And in one respect, and this is going to work into what we're looking at here, is that you die to all the other choices in life. And you're raised to newness of life in this one path that you choose to be with Jesus. It's beautiful. And you can, I suppose you could mourn that you've lost all these other paths, all these other roads that you couldn't go down. You know, two, two roads diverged in a wood, right? It's classic. And you can only choose one. The alternative is just to sit there at the fork in the road forever and never make any progress. That's not, a, that's not a choice I don't think any of us really want to make. So that's where this passage starts. Is that Paul is saying, you Colossians are in great shape. You've already gone all in with Jesus. You've already chosen Jesus. You've been baptized. You're not mixing it up buffet style. You've died to the other choices and you've been raised with him to a new life and you're leaving the old life and the old choices behind. And that's great. Um, and so now Paul is going to kind of say, listen, I know that there's some mystery. We like mystery. It's kind of exciting. Who done it? We know that this syncretistic religion in your town has a bit of a mystery religion thing going on to it. He says, guess what? We can do better. You know, it's like a car salesman. Like, well, this one has chrome bumpers. You know, this is better. You know, our faith actually has some mystery. Now, did you know that? Look at verse 3. This is one of the most mysterious, but also one of the most beautiful things in all of the Bible. Okay? And it goes like this. For you died, he's talking about their baptism, he's talking about their dying to other choices and following Christ. You died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Take a look at that. I'm going to read it again. Just look at it in your Bible, too, and you can make notes on it if you want. Because we have to figure out what this means. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And I'll be honest, I've had a hard time understanding what this has been about for a good part of my Christian life when I read it. You know, I didn't read it every day going, well, you know, what is this? But I would, I'd, go through, I'd hear it read or I'd read it and I'd go, well, that's odd. Well, I've got to keep reading, you know. But I want to stop here. This is mysterious. You died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And I want to just run through really quickly what that word hidden could mean, because it's really actually good news. It could be mysterious. There is some mystery to it, like we hide things. That's a bit mysterious. Now, I have to say again that we don't hide things, right? Um, we'll, we'll get to that. But we're, we're a faith that's about revealing things, not about hiding things. But yet, our life is hidden with Christ and God. So here's some things that it could mean, okay? Interpreters have different views of things. Uh, by the way, last week we had Ryan preach about translation. I thought it was excellent. I learned new things, that's also always a great thing. But it, again, it points to how challenging translation is. It's a challenging thing to do. If you weren't here, he talked about the challenges of, of translating the Lord's uh, prayer 
into the native language that they're set to translate. And they had to settle on, give us this day our daily tortilla instead of bread. Because bread is a different word there. It doesn't mean the same thing. But tortilla is that daily nourishment that they crave in that culture. And it's, does it sound a little irreverent? That doesn't matter. It's not for you, right? It's for them. They'll get that. They'll go, oh, give us this day our daily tortilla. Oh, of course. So there's that challenge. There's a really great cultural challenge, understanding the culture and the language. And then, of course, understanding our own scriptures so that we can translate an idea in one language into an idea or concept in another language. It was an excellent one. And I will put that on the website for those of you who missed it. Right now, it's not on there. But we'll, we'll get it up there. So anyways, the challenge with translation for us is uh, the, the Greek word behind this word hidden means kikrypto. It's where we get the word cryptology or encrypted or cryptic, like a cryptic comment. It's the same word. It means hidden or mysterious or secret. Okay? Um, it could mean that your life is concealed. You don't see it because you're going to church with your other people. Uh, there's a part of you that other people don't get or don't understand or don't see. It could mean that it belongs to the eternal. That's sometimes code language in the New, not code language, but language that the New Testament uses is that something that's hidden has got a connection to the eternal. It's, it's held forever. Um, it could mean that while it's hidden now, the full meaning of a Christian's life has not yet been revealed. And the Apostle Paul talks like this, that what we shall become is not fully revealed yet. There's this sense that whoever you are now in Christ, in the future, something even more amazing is going to come out and come out on display. And so, in a way, another way of saying is the Christian life is a journey, a journey of change, a journey of growth. And this small plant that I am right now will turn into a redwood tree someday. It just hasn't happened yet, right? We hope, we hope for that day. Um, one concept is that he's speaking to people who have been baptized. And so when he says that they're hidden, it kind of means that they've been plunged under the water, and to the world it looked like they died on some level. They, they kind of were hidden in the tomb of their baptism. They died to other choices, and they came out again. It could mean that they're hidden, your life is hidden in heaven, and that has some interesting implications. One is security. Your life is not in this world anymore. You cannot really lose it anymore. It's hidden with Christ in God. You're safe and secure. Your life is in the loving arms of God, and nothing can snatch your life out of his hands. That's where I kind of want to focus on it. That's what it might mean that your life is hidden with Christ and God, is that God has this hold on you, and he will not let you go. He will not let an evil one come and snatch you away from him. So there's a lot of choices. Do you have room in the margin of your Bible to write all this down? Right, you don't. There's a lot. That's the challenge. Right? So your life is hidden with Christ in God. Which meaning can we pick? Well, I can't tell you which one to pick. And sometimes with Scripture, maybe it's okay to pick the one that you need the most right now. <laughs> Do you need to feel safe? Do you need to feel secure in the loving arms of God? This is the day to hear this word. Or do you need to look to the future with hope and say, what I am now is nothing compared to what I will be 
someday. I have not yet fully been revealed in my Christian life, and something is going to change and grow in me. So that's the optimistic view. If that's where you are today, then I want you to hear that. That's what this could say to you, okay? But I like, I like the last one. When you died to other paths and you put your trust in one person, you put all your eggs in one basket, you signed on with a safe bet, your life is valuable and precious to God and he's keeping it safe, connected with Jesus, and held in the arms of God himself. It's beautiful. See, this is the word that that town, that that church in this town needs. You've got this raging syncretistic religion that's kind of breathing down your neck, telling you what to touch, what to eat, what festivals to keep, which angels to worship. And Paul says, you don't need that. You are who you are in God. You're safe in God's arms. Your town can't take it away from you. This other religion can't take it away from you. Christ died you died in him in your baptism. You've both been raised to new life. And now, even though you have a life on this earth, your whole eternal life is completely safe and wrapped up with God. Praise God. So we have something that's a secret, but it, it, it's not a secret, but it's a mystery. We don't know why God does the, way, the things the way he does. But it's not a secret, um, and that's, again, I, want, I mentioned that we would talk about this just real quickly, is that our faith is not a faith of concealing things or keeping secrets. There's no big reveal at the end. Everything, we publish our podcasts on the internet. Anyone can walk in these doors any moment and listen to what we're saying. There's very few meetings even at the church that are, are, we wouldn't publish the notes or the minutes from, unless it had to do with sort of spiritual care and personal issues that somebody, somebody's privacy was at stake. Um, we're open. We reveal. You can still go to the library. Did you know this? You can go to the library, and they have several copies of the Bible in the library. Makes sense. It's a book, right? There's some countries where the libraries don't have Bibles. I guarantee you that. Who, de- who knows, maybe someday the day will come when our libraries will ban having Bibles in them because the Bible is just a horrible book, as you know. But not yet. You can still go to the library. You can check out a copy of the Bible. You can read the whole thing. We're an open book. Everything we believe is on display. But there is one level of mystery that actually is there. And this is what it is. And Paul kind of is getting at this too. This is the source of friction even between the town and the church in Colossae. Is that when you've had an experience of Jesus, your life changes in this way that other people who haven't had it don't understand. And that's okay. That's just how it is. It wouldn't be a meaningful experience if there wasn't something about it that wasn't amazing, that it would be hard even to express. And so on one level, there is a mystery about being a Christian. It's because you have this change in your life that other people can't quite figure out. They kind of push in at the edges of it. I have a friend named Ben, and I hope he's listening today on the podcast or, you know, whatever. And uh, when I first met him, he was an atheist. He grew up, uh, his parents were atheistic college professors on the East Coast. You know, you know exactly who I'm talking about, don't you? You know? You don't, but you do. 
And uh, I invited him to a Bible study, and he's like, ha! You know, he said, and, and I said, oh, that's very interesting. That was an interesting response to my invitation to a Bible study. You know? And uh, he said, you know, Christians just seem like they know the answers to everything, and they don't, you know, they're just always looking down on other people. And I said, you're probably right, you know, like, you're probably right. It probably does seem that way. I, I can't. It, and, but he kind of pointed at us, and he said, it's like you all know something that the rest of us don't know. Isn't that prophetic? Like he kind of, even in his dislike for Christians, he actually pointed to something that was true about Christians. They had an experience and they had a knowledge that other people didn't yet have. And it made them different. And, and sometimes it twisted them into legalistic weird people, right? But in other times it turns them into people like Jed. Jed, who brings the Nick Evangelist here every year, who's like, he helps orphans on the streets of Managua because Christ has changed him. That's the only reason I can think that he does that, right? It changed him, and it changes them. The good news is that Ben is a Christian now, and he kind of said, oh, I get it. He married a Christian girl, uh, and I think I've told you this. I said, how did your family respond to the wonderful news that you became a Christian? He's like, I'm really surprised. I thought this was great news. They did not like it at all. I said, welcome to my world, Ben. This is, this is what it's like to be a Christian. People don't like you. you know, that's not true exactly, but, but we don't like what we don't understand. This mystery of how we're different when we come to faith is on display all the time. But one of the most beautiful, it leads to one of the most beautiful things, which is when somebody who doesn't understand it gets to that point where they start understanding it. It's the moment of conversion. And I remember this from youth ministry. A child, not a child, a young person, a teenager says, I don't get it. I don't get it. Why did he have to, you know, why did Jesus have to die? Why did, they, I don't get, you know. And then there's this moment where they go, I get it. I get it now. You know, and then they're ready. They're ready to accept Jesus and they're ready to have a new life. And it's the most beautiful moment you can be a a witness to. It's really great. And so now they've chosen, they've died to all the other paths, they've forsaken all others, and they're going with Jesus, and they're having this new experience that they've never had before. And so in that respect, yes, Christianity is a mysterious thing, because Christians have had experiences and insights that other people have not yet had. Let's remember the yet, right? What if we all were just like, this knowledge is great. We really enjoy having it for ourselves. And uh, we could even look down on people who don't have it. No. You received it at one point, and it changed your life. We need to bring everybody into this to at least have the option, the opportunity to know this. You know what I'm saying. And so that's, that's actually the evangelistic missional challenge in what Paul is saying here. Everyone needs to know how great this hidden life is and so that their lives can be safe in God's arms with Jesus. So, let's move to conclusion. Given all of this, there's the challenges of their town, the people in Colossians. They're, they're being told by Paul about the true nature of God uh, and of Jesus and how our life is safe in the arms of God. And now Paul is telling them what that should mean. For us. What does that mean now? Now that you know that your life is with Christ in God, it's hidden there, it's safe. 
What does that mean? Once we have that, then now he um, makes a list, two lists, always two lists, a list of vices and a list of virtues. And I'm just going to go over the list real quick, right? So the list of vices, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, lying to each other. He says, don't do any of those things. These do not, these are not part of the new life. Instead, he says, you've put on the new self. Uh, and by the way, when we've put on the new self, we stand before Christ and God as merely and, and beautifully humans. And so there's these distinctions that don't matter. Did you see this really interesting? It almost seems like it doesn't fit, but take a look at it. <clears throat> Verse 11, or let's start at 10. You put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of his creator. Here, and he's talking about those who have received this knowledge, those who have had this experience, those who have died with Christ and been raised again, put on the new self, which is being renewed. In that space, in this place that you're occupying both earth and heaven at the same time in the presence of God, he says, there's no longer Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian. Have you two Scythians went into a bar? And who are the Scythians? Well, this is a tribe of people, right? You know, but they, they probably were not well liked by this the people in this town. The Scythians. If you had a lisp, it would be really hilarious to watch somebody talk about the Scythians. I'm having it now just by thinking about it. Slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. In this place of new life in Christ, all these distinctions in the world, Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, big distinctions to these people. Barbarian, well, we don't want to be barbarians. Uh, I know some barbarians, they're in my family, you should see how they eat. I'm not going to say which one of them, it could be me, it could be me, for all you know. Try not to be that pastor dad that kind of drags their family into things here. So, I'll, it was me, it was me. Um, the distinctions stop existing in front of God. It's very interesting. In heaven, there's not different sections. Do you know that there's not, I hope this is not a surprise to you, but there's not an American section of heaven. There's not. There's not going to be any flags up there either. I can guarantee you that. There's not going to be a pledge of allegiance or anything like that. It's because Christ is all and is in all, right? There's, there's not an artist section of heaven. There's not a vegetarian section of heaven. There's not a women-only section of heaven. Or a man. We're just humans in heaven. God doesn't see people on the basis of their distinctions. There's no class distinctions in heaven. There's not a rich part or a poor part. It doesn't exist. God sees all people as people, as his dearly and beloved children. And I think Paul's admonishment here is, as you have this new life, you need to start seeing people as God sees them. So stop making distinctions amongst yourself. Stop looking at people outside the church as if they were different. Those barbarians, those Scythians, those darn Scythians that come and pillage your town from time to time, they're people too. God loves them, right? So that's in the middle of those lists of virtues and vices, right? So the list of virtues, um, the list of vices I've already read, and then we have the list of virtues. Here they are. Compa each one of these is worth a sermon in itself. Compassion, kindness, 
Humility. Ugh. Very difficult. Gentleness and patience. Wow. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. God's family cannot hold grudges. You can't. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love. The greatest of these is love, as he says in 1 Corinthians 13. The buffet is out there, all right? You could choose and pick, but we've died to the rest of the buffet, and we're just at one table, okay? We've chosen the way of Christ. It means our lives are safe and secure with Christ in the arms of God, and as a result, we live in a different way. We have experiences that other people have not yet had. And we're freed up not to be enslaved by customs or rituals, but to see other people as God sees them and to love our neighbor as the highest good. Praise God for that. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for this beautiful, mysterious, complex letter. Thank you for your servant, Paul, who wrote it in courage and in humility. Father, make this letter our letter today, this week, have it drive its way into our lives. And Lord, thank you that our lives are hidden with you in the presence of God. Amen.